As I was closing up for the night, I thought about all the movies that had been discussed in the spoiler room. That was when the temperature in the room changed. I went to the thermostat and it said it was 52 degrees KB. Suddenly I found myself in a maze of movie posters. No matter what direction I went, each path led me back to one actor, Kevin Bacon. That was when it was clear what I had to do. When I snapped out of it, I added bacon to the menu. 2020 was going to be an interesting year in the spoiler room. And welcome once again to the spoiler room, venturing down the stairs, pulling up a chair into the room that is 52 degrees KB all year. And we're getting near the end of the year, Ian. It's, it's... <laughs> it's it's i'm smiling i'm smiling because i'm like i i'm i'm shooting from the hip for next month uh for next year so a little bit i've got a, a structured plan but but not nearly what i went through with this which don't get me wrong this has been a wonderful journey so far we've got three episodes left including this one and uh, but at the same time i'm like Seeing the end, it's bittersweet. So we it is animation month here, folks, in the spoiler room for December. And taking this journey with me, as always, it is the man himself. It is Mr. Ian Simmons is with us tonight once again. Hello, Ian. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you again for having me. I, I should go back and look at the number of weeks that I've actually been part of this because I wasn't with the show until, you know, this year like in the end. March or April or something like that. But and we roped you in. <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's been one of the highlights of a, of a very strange year. But on that note, uh, they have podcast awards, I think. They still do that. Uh, yeah. You should get some kind of a, a trophy for putting this whole thing together because especially what I know of how this year is going to end in terms of the movies coming full circle. Yeah. Uh, you know, that alone is a, that's an achievement. So congratulations, <laughs> premature as it may be. Well, well, thank you. Uh, it was, it was fun planning out and it's helped me step outside my box and, and actually see films. I had either not watched, but intended to all along years ago. And at the same time, just see films that I probably wouldn't normally watch. You know, that was also part of the plan with this. So, and I managed to turn this month into animation month because, yeah, because Kira <laughs> Sedgwick was the voice in Cop Car and I managed to do it, folks. And tonight is another animated film. 1986. Mr. Don Bluth, uh, who was wowing us with Dragon's Lair and with Space Ace, Kim's out with his second feature film after Secrets of Nim. And Ian, by all means, sir, if you can, give us the synopsis of An American Tale. It's a quick synopsis, man. I, oh, this yeah. movie is short. Uh, it is. It is indeed. It's, it is very basic, and I mean mm -hmm. that in a good way. Um, Fievel Mouskowitz is a, <laughs> a little Russian mouse living uh, in 1885. Or no, 1855. Sorry, uh, in Russia, the no, it's 1885. Oh, is it 1885? I wrote yeah. down 1855. No, I, I'm yeah, because he's in in Shatka, Russia. I actually took that note down. Was that it was 1885? So. You know, I think you might be. I think I just didn't. My pen went out as I was making that loop. <laughs> so my sure? the first five, the first yeah, yeah. never mind. No, um, 1885. Yeah, go. Okay, so he. 
the family is very poor. They're living in the hole in the wall of another poor, like human family. Uh, everybody's broke. Uh, everybody's being terrorized by roving gangs. I'm not quite up on my Russian politics of the era, surprisingly. It was the but, uh, yeah. Yeah. So village gets raided. Uh, these cats show up and terrorize the mice. The mice end up uh, losing their home and sailing away to America, the promised land. And Fievel is separated from his family, both the Mouskowitzes and Fievel end up in America in exactly the same spot, but they're trying to find each other. And comically, they find themselves in the exact same place throughout the film, but unable to see each other for various reasons. Um, and Fievel ends up in the middle of this weird political intrigue uh, involving Madeline Kahn's character and another mouse who is trying to get votes from immigrants and dead people uh you know i just i, I don't know exactly where this whole thing is going because that subplot kind of dies but there's another mouse who is kidnapping younger mice and putting them to work somehow he turns out to be a cat there's a big push to get rid of the cats because there are no not supposed to be any cats in america and there's a giant pneumatic almost robot cat dog thing at the end and then it's over <laughs> bible meets his family again <laughs> that that is it it i remember now because i remember watching this when not when it first came out i didn't see it in the theaters but i remember it hitting cable a lot so i did watch it one time and i thought maybe watching it now i might have a different perspective having been a parent and and being older than you know 11 year old me <laughs> mm, mm-hmm. was you know 12 year old me watching it um yeah i and watching it now as a whatever you want to call me you're the film critic whatever you want to call me <laughs> film person who watches films and thinks he knows what he's talking about a film but, critic yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> Watch watching it now though, I it it made me even realize more of I'm like they I've said this in the past for some other films they didn't pick a lane in a, in a way they they were kind of all over the road and I like you said I never quite got where are we going with this and what exactly is the the underlying theme in here you know you know and that's that's the thing is this movie was produced by steven spielberg directed by don bluth uh it is classic cold war end of the cold war era propaganda yes yes and i don't necessarily mean that as a criticism Mm -hmm. because as much as I was confused by a lot of what was going on, because I watched this earlier today in the middle of a rather kind of a chaotic day. Mm. Uh, so I had to watch it in probably two or three chunks, mm-hmm. you know, kind of coming back to it and all that. But uh, I was swept up by the emotion, not so much the storyline, but by the emotions going on in the film, mm-hmm. the kind of the ideas of America as a hopeful place that people wanted to come to. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of kind of multi-ethnic, multinational casts of mice coming together. Basically, the cats are the big enemy. And I don't know. I'd have to go back and probably read more about it. I don't know if the cats are supposed to be represent 
communism, mm. you know, is I, the sort I of would, the, I wouldn't doubt it one bit. <laughs> yeah. And, but, uh, but at a certain point, uh, because there's the whole idea of like, we have to drive the cats, you know, out of the, out of the dock where they all live. They live on Ellis Island, essentially drive them out onto a ship bound for Hong Kong. So we never have to deal with them again. But there's also the big, uh, cat, voiced by Dom DeLuise, who kind of becomes their friend. So I don't know if the idea is the cats represent communism versus just this kind of an other enemy kind of a thing that we can humanize to a certain degree. Yes, they're going to be bad cats, but there can also be good cats that we can get along with, thus furthering the sort of melting pot message of America. Um, you know, I it's just it's a very hopeful and sweet movie that is not made for kids really i think it's made for ki for adults who took like <laughs> russian mid uh, late 18th century russian or 19th century russian history <laughs> well let's not only forget not only is he russian he's he's jewish russian yes they're yeah, celebrating there's, there's hanukkah, hanukkah yeah. at the beginning which i i gave total respect for because you don't see that portrayed often in you know, cartoons or hell in movies in general, Hanukkah is a holiday that you don't normally see <laughs> addressed or explored at all, you know, in, in, in film, it's just, it's always Christmas, you know, it, it, Hanukkah, you don't really see portrayed, like spend some time on it, which they do here. I mean, they spend a bit of time on it, you know, the, they're, they are Jewish mice in Russia, uh, you know, um, and well, and I, I got that with you. Too. It's, it's funny because Bluth style and this is kind of along the lines with Secret of Nim. I think he did it better in Secret of Nim, but that wasn't a propaganda. This is definitely more Cold War. Hey, America's hopeful type of thing. I just didn't get it if he was trying to give a history lesson or if it was kind of a wink to the adults. Because, like you said, you have all these immigrants who are hopeful for coming into Ellis Island saying, oh, there's no cats in America, which you're like, no, no, there's plenty of cats. All of these people have these high hopes only to get to America and have them supremely crushed. Well, and, you know, honestly, we see that still... Uh today you right. know the idea right. of a lot of people coming in from you know mexico and, and places beyond being promised mm -hmm. this <laughs> to, to, to borrow a phrase a land of milk and honey right uh, only to be exploited by like coyotes and people and they get here and they find a nation that doesn't want them mm -hmm. you know or it's a dangerous terrain or all sorts of you know problems uh, with the image of america versus the reality of america now this movie is definitely very much pro-american i don't really have a, a problem with that because it does paint a good picture of you know mm -hmm. something to strive for uh i think if more people kind of took a step back to realize that people did once think of this country mm -hmm. as a as a great place not that it needs to be made great again. I don't know. Oh, um, <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. Uh, but it's, thank it's you, just, everyone. Good night. No, just kidding. No, but what, I, but what I'm what I'm saying is, yeah. that kind of like a cheesy idea. This is mm -hmm. what I think some people are are talking about. Yeah, no, I, and, and that's fine. I have no problem. Kind of, what got me was that, and this is why I kind of said pick a lane. You would get these bits of 
message and, and, and you know, uh, thoughts and themes of the U.S. being a hopeful place, of a place where you can prosper, you get kind of these little history lessons, these little, these themes. And then we get five minutes of Fievel being cute, aha, for the kids. And, you know, yeah. that's, that's what threw me off is, whereas I felt in Secret of Nim. It stayed consistently ser- kind of serious and dark. I mean, it, it was it, a, a little bit more, whereas in here, we get Fievel, who's a very young kid, going through a very scary place. Don't get me wrong. But you would get these kind of more serious moments, and then you get Fievel ha-ha moments, and then you get serious again. Like, to whereas I'm watching this going, no, j- just stay cons- con- a little more consistent, you know, uh, for me, I, I mean, for a kid, they're probably not going to pick up on it anyway. Oh, look, cute mouse. And Don Bluth's style is very youth-friendly as far as the way everybody's drawn. Everybody's kind of drawn with kind of... Even the bad guys have happy smile, have smiles <laughs> on their face. You know, they're they're creepy smiles at times, but it, it they're fun characters, yeah, and the um the, the main uh Warren T Rat who's mm-hmm. the uh the, the sort of main villain who's collecting these mice and you know enslaving them. Uh which I don't, I'm not I wasn't quite sure what his deal was because he turns out he's a cat who's disguised as a mouse. But what was he doing with these like why was he doing that? It's not like that he was and what was he enslaving them for? I know he like kind of swept five up into a room and I think he had his henchmen say, get to work or something. I don't know what they were working on. Were they just being fattened up to be food for the cats that this movie needed to be a little bit longer to flesh out some of their <laughs> ideas? Because also when I mentioned that one guy who was collecting votes, yeah. um, I don't remember his. What, yeah, what it his was Johnny. He, he was honest. He was honest. Honest John. Or, honest yeah. John. Yeah. Right. The first time we see him, there's a dead mouse and he gets his name and puts it in a book of like ghost votes, as it's called. Yeah. Uh, what was he running for? I know he was like with Madeline Kahn's, you know, upper crust, rich mouse character. But I didn't understand what her involvement was with him, her relationship. Was there an election going on? And all of a sudden they're just rabble rousing everybody to go take out the cats. It's very convoluted and confusing. It- it was, you know, and and it was it was weird that they added. I totally forgot about about that storyline with the cats and that because I remember it being mostly about Fievel trying to get to his family, which is a great theme. And as he's going on, he meets these cast of characters, you know, the the journey onward, you know, homeward bound type of story, you know, the kid. Yeah. And and I like that. And you get that for like an hour. It's like the hour or so of the film is about him just trying to meet up with his family. And he meets up with his family. And then we get, like you said, this last like 20 minutes where we get these characters and ideas that are never fully explored. They're, they're implied. And you just, they go away. The Honest John, they play at a, a class warfare between the mice, so the downtown mice and the uptown mice, and how they're banding together to fight the cats who are a problem, but only really on the dock. So I don't know how they're giving the uptown mice problems. They never explain that. Like you said, motivation for for Honest uh, uh, John to, to be getting ghost votes. You know, I... I don't know if they're actually supposed to be fleshed out or if they were just touching on bits of history that if you're 
versed in that time of period, you'd be like, oh, that's, you know, they did that. Well, and that, you know, that reminds me of, um, I, I know these were developed at, the, you know, different times and in different mm -hmm. media. 1986 was also when the graphic novel Mouse uh, came yeah. out by Art Spiegelman. I don't know if you ever, did you ever read that? Yes, I did actually. Yeah. yeah. And that was for, for people who don't know, uh, it's a, I think it was the first and possibly only graphic novel to win the Pulitzer. Um, and it's a historical account of Art Spiegelman's father's journey through World War II uh, as a Jew uh, surviving in, I believe it's Poland. Allegorically, the Nazis mm -hmm. are cats and the Jews are mice and the right. Poles are pigs and so forth. But these both came out in 1986. Mm -hmm. uh, 1986 is also the year of Rocky IV. Um, you know, so you've got this rah-rah <laughs> patriotism. So there's something in the water there about like metaphor and you know God and country and all this stuff. But I feel like there was an hour of this movie missing because you also have the side characters uh, that Fievel kind of meets up with. There's mm -hmm. this guy Tony the Mouse, yes, and he falls in love with one of the uh, you know activist mice girls but nothing really ever comes of that you think it's going to be a main story but then they kind of disappear and they pop up again at the end um the whole idea of driving the cats off the dock yeah am i to believe that the there are only six cats in the entirety of new york like is that really going to drive communism out or whatever they're supposed to be well and, and let's not free i mean the 80s was popular for this i mean mid 80s is the is the peak of Cold War propaganda in your films? I mean, let's just face it. From eighty four, yeah, <laughs> you know the Ruskies. I mean, this film comes very close into a stealing a hook line from the comic Yakov Smirnoff, which <laughs> they come very close to saying it, but I think he trademarked it, so they couldn't <laughs> say it. But there's a number of times where they go, Ah, America. What a place to be when his is America. What a country. What a country. <laughs> That's a, every time my mind was filling in that blank when they were saying it, like, come on, say it. And they don't. And that's because I think he trademarked that. It, I, I, I didn't even think about that. I wasn't, I, but now I want to go back and watch this again and just, just so I can play that. <laughs> you know, but I mean, in 84, we had Red Dawn, which, if you ever want to see a fairy tale, a U.S. Cold War propaganda fairy tale, which the remake missed the mark on a, a bit. 84 Red Dawn was like a fantasy uh, movie for folks. <laughs> Two things. One, I I only watched it the one time 10 years ago whenever it came out. I remember liking, I think, the remake on some level. I don't remember why. But secondly, Red Dawn, the original... Okay, it's a fairy tale in the sense it's very much like Ra Ra Go America, but it is not a fairy tale in terms of what happened. Like everybody dies in that. Well, no, no, I. Well, it's like a grim fairy tale. What I mean, what I mean, it was a, it is. I shouldn't say fairy tale. I should say fantasy. It was a Cold War propaganda fantasy film. The high school kids, the U.S. high school kids, taking it to the Ruskies, you know, and, and giving you know. But I mean, we'd get themes like that in their films throughout the mid '80s. I mean, it's it's everywhere <laughs> dude they, they, the two things i remember most about red dawn strangely enough 
was John, uh, no, it was Patrick Swayze. Yeah. I almost said John Wayne. <laughs> Patrick, <laughs> Patrick Swayze saying, piss in the carburetor. Um, <laughs> and the other, the opening raid scene on the high school, mm-hmm. when they are, everyone's evacuating, they have a shot of the window where they first broke in. And there's a dead high school kid leaning halfway out the window with that just dead-eyed stare. That freaked me the fuck out when I was eight or whenever I watched it. My parents had no business letting me watch that movie when I was a kid. No, but we watched it, but that was the 80s. The 80s was popular, as I've mentioned many times before. The 80s, there was a trend where parents just let their kids watch whatever the hell they wanted. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, I'm glad you brought that, because to bring it back around to American Tale, this is... The, the, the poster has cute Fievel, you have a cute Dom DeLuise cat, you have all these fun mice. You have a scene where we get introduced to Madeline Kahn's character, where there's an actual dead mouse at an Irish wake on the table. And it's not like implied like he's acting dead. He's an actual dead character out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I just was like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was just glad that they didn't go the Disney route and kill off Fievel's parents right at the beginning. Right. Or at least because this is this is how it differentiates itself from Disney is the entire family, again, spoiler alert, is alive at the end. <laughs> right? This isn't a Pixar or Disney, late Disney or Pixar film where all the parents die in some horrific way. And uh, I you know, I gotta say, the the reunion scene mm-hmm. at the very end of the film, I was so swept up. It's beautiful. We haven't really talked about the animation. The character animation is, you know, it's Don Bluth. But I was really keyed into the environmental mm-hmm. stuff, the mm-hmm. transitions, the sort of the loftier almost conceptual animations of like the musical numbers, really sweet stuff. But uh, towards the end of it, uh, you know, there's some wreckage and Fievel kind of comes to, and he's stumbling around and there's like a burst pipe or something flooding water into the area. Oh, you, you, you muted there. (laughs) There you go. Right, yeah, I knocked my microphone in my you enthusiasm. Get, you got a little excited um, there, so that's okay. I did, I did. But no, so there's this water coming down into mm-hmm. from a pipe or something, and I was just obsessed with with watching that animation. It looked like water. It mm-hmm. it looked more almost more impressive than anything I've seen in a 3D rendering in a Pixar movie of water. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when Fievel and his dad are like rolling around, and there's you know kind of like raindrops or whatever, and everything's sparkling and happy and golden. I'm like, this is this is perfection. I, I was genuinely choked up, even though you're right. It's just this kind of a cute dopey character and, and his dad, it's totally predictable, but it's effective. No, it is totally effective because in all honesty, I wasn't really emotionally invested. I didn't think uh, in most of the characters, you know, five I found kind of annoying. And, and I was like, I mean, I know, I, I know the kid that age, but still I was just, this was not a main character that really I'm like, dude uh you know but even to me i found it and you're right it, it's the the combination of james horner's score which is fantastic in this film james horner's score is just beautiful in this movie it's a combination of his um 
score, the artistic choices they made with the drawing and the animation, and the way it was actually handled and directed. Because one, in all honesty, it's interesting in a good way. And I know I'm not speaking in generalizations. There are other examples, but not a lot of films explore a father-son relationship in a positive way. Yeah. You've watched enough movies to know. (laughs) Well, I've watched enough modern movies, and that's something that even in 1986, I don't know that that was, Mm -hmm. you know, well, maybe Rocky IV, honestly, uh, (laughs) because that was a big, you know, I I know he had the little boy had the robot and he was watching Mm -hmm. his dad in Russia, but it was very much like Rocky was connected with his Mm -hmm. son in that way. But in a lot of modern films, yeah, either the parents are dead or a lot of it is about the nurturing mother-daughter, mother-son relationship, and the dad is just kind of, you know, somewhere else. Uh, So watching this, it was like a weird culture shock's the wrong phrase, but I'm like, oh my God, people used to focus on this at some point. I mean, I think the last time I saw something that was that blatant of a sweet father-son relationship in a family-ish movie was Real Steel with Hugh Jackman. Yeah. Fantastic that, movie. It is. It, that's actually a movie that turned out a hell of a lot better than I thought it would be real still and, was. And it's a crime because nobody saw that movie. It no, tanked. No, it tanked. But you're right. That was a film that stood out for me because I'm like, holy crap, we have a positive father-son relationship here. We Not only is it a positive son relationship, but the dad isn't portrayed like a complete idiot because let's face <laughs> it, like you said, it... and. No, I and I understand the whole white males control film and all that. But if you get down to brass tacks, especially for family films, like an American Tale, even it's usually the mom who ends up being the the nurturing one, the mom who the kid is looking for. They're calling for their mom versus their dad, and in American Tale, Fievel's asking for his father. His mm-hmm. dad's looking for him. His dad is out looking for him more so than the mom in some respect. They don't disrespect the mom at all, but it definitely, you could tell the film is trying to focus on a father-son relationship in a positive way, which was nice to see because, especially as a dad, there's more often than not the dad is the alcoholic, the abuser, the the useless one. The or, the, com- or the the doofus, yeah. The doofus, the comic relief. And it's more the child and their siblings or the child and their mother, you know. Um, it's not that often you see the dad portrayed here. And, and we get that. And I thought that was great. I, I really did. I that, that scene, I wasn't really emotionally invested or on the edge of my seat going, oh, my God, is Fievel going to survive or whatnot? <laughs> But for some reason, we get to that scene and it actually did move me emotionally versus most of the rest of the movie, which was just like, okay, you know, this is entertaining. I like the art and that. And then you just get this scene and all of a sudden I found myself like, I even remember just looking at myself going, holy crap, I'm actually feeling something for this scene (laughs) with the dad and son. And they first miss each other and then they got to turn around and come back and then he hugs them and and they're in the water and the light comes down, which is not the first time we get the bright golden light. There's a bright golden light in the beginning because Fievel gets washed overboard early on in the film and he gets swept away and the family thinks he's dead, which, hey, 
here's an uplifting film. <laughs> Fievel's dead. Uh, but he shows up later inside a bottle, and as he gets close to the U.S., uh, to, to Ellis Island, there's a golden light that shines down upon the bottle. Yeah, it's and it's. I think that, that was probably glinting off of uh, Lady Liberty, who we see yes. being constructed through the film, and we see her as this big bronze, the bronze kind of a statue yeah. that that looks very much golden. And yeah, at the end, oh my God, the Statue of Liberty Winking. winks. But you know, I'm like, all right, you didn't need that because I was, I got the message that you know, just sweeping around the Statue of Liberty with. You know, in 1986, they were sort of not rotoscoping, but mm -hmm. there was no 3D model of that statue. You're watching mm -hmm. 2D animation providing a 3D effect as this right. bird with these two mice on it are circling around it. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. um, I also couldn't help but think about what would ha we would get uh, five years later uh, with the Ghostbusters 2 walking down the street in the, inside the giant Statue of Liberty, um, which is weird to think of that as being pro usa propaganda but you know there's probably a case to be made <laughs> yeah yeah i would i would definitely say there'd be a case to be made um but yeah it, it was impressive the artwork of don bluth that's the one thing that's always stood out for me is the artistry in don bluth films at least whether or not they're oversaturatedly sappy and dark like law you know the the you know tail uh little foot um, a land, you know, the land, whatever it is, land, land before time, land before time. I, I can't, I can, I handle this Don Bluth. I love Don Bluth's secret of Nim, and it's not just because I'm cranky old man. Even when I was younger, I was when you get to land before time, I just can't. I, I, it's way too saccharine for me. It's even more saccharine than this in many ways. I've I've yeah. never seen The Land Before Time or any of its 98 sequels. Did you know they made three other sequels to An American Tale? No, I knew they I knew they, they made Five Will Goes West. I assume the others are direct to video. Yeah, they're going to be direct to video, but they did make they did make two more American Tale films after American Tale 2, though I think uh Bluth only directed the first American Tale. Uh, the, okay. the, 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 I think the later ones were picked up by the studio and they ran with it. Um, in fact, I don't even know if he had anything, according to IMDb, he didn't even have anything to deal with the production of the ones after this. So the studio was like, hey, we have an American tale. It was one of the top grossing not Disney animated films uh, of the time. Uh, so, yeah, let's yeah. run with this. Yeah. He just had to endorse the checks, the royalty checks. He just <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you know. So, yeah, I, I, I like a lot of things in this. This I enjoyed this film a lot more than I thought I had when I first watched it. But again, I was like twelve or thirteen when I watched it. Now, I get what they're going for, but at the same time, I'm like, I wish they would have kind of stuck more to the same tone like they did with Secret of Nim versus trying to add the little bit lighter spots in between because like you said there's stuff here that i wanted to see more explored i was wondering about honest i'm like you know i and then we have lily von stoop's aunt uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i love madeline khan but i could not get 
Lily Von Stupp out of my head whenever she opened her mouth, even her mouse mouth. I couldn't because she was even doing the shtick of the what's hold the wowie. Yeah. Instead of a rally, (laughs) what's hold the wowie? You know, she's doing the Elma Fudd like she did with Lily Von Stupp. And I don't know what, but I'm just like, I couldn't help but think of her. I'm watching this animated mouse and I just <laughs> like, ah, like, like, <laughs> I just, I could not get Lily. Every time she talked, I was just like, <laughs> another thing with this film too, that was a little, that you could tell they were trying to gear it towards kids still, even though there was a lot of adult stuff was, we have the kid come up with the idea for defeating the cats, and we don't hear the idea right away. And then you have to remember at the beginning of the film when he was being told the story of this very large cat who was tall as a tree. The Mouse of Minsk, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Mouse of Minsk. And then he decides to... But there's really no lead-up. There's really no setup of how he comes up with this. He just, he just, you know, that he was actually pondering how to defeat the cats. You know, it's just like he tells him this idea, which you don't hear right away until you start seeing him do the A team montage of building it. Um, but even then, you're like, what are they building? And where did he get that? You know, it, it was like a little out of the blue, which again. <laughs> Is catering towards your young audience because, oh, look, the kid came up with the idea the adults are following. But at the same time, as an adult, you're going, where'd this come from? <laughs> you know, there was no real setup. And I don't need my handheld, but at the same time, it was like, it felt so out of the blue. Or out of the bluth. Or out of um, the bluth. Oh. Now, I... Uh... <laughs> It's interesting that you say that because we've been talking about how much Fievel is this cute little aw shucks full of wonder being swept, swept along, but he is the architect of this, you know, gigantic <laughs> death machine <laughs> meant to kill all the cats and, or, or scare them scare away. Scare them away, at least. We want to kill them. We just want to scare them, um, which that was a great little, that was sort of the precursor to that comedy trope where someone gets horribly injured off screen and they yell back, I'm okay. Um, is when the cats get driven into the river mm-hmm. and you're pretty sure they're all dead, but then you see them like a minute later, they're all being hoisted onto the anchor. anchor yeah. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> I, yeah. Fievel is an interesting one uh, for sure. One thing we haven't talked about is uh, the big famous musical number. I know there's, there's music all throughout this film, but uh what did you think of somewhere out there? Here's this, and it's going to be a weird connection, but this is kind of a holiday film. It came out in, in December, actually, I think, mm. or around the holiday time, if I remember. Maybe I was wrong, but I think, I think this this was supposed to, because, uh, yeah, November twenty first. So wow. this came okay. out. This came so out Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Thing, yeah. It was a Thanksgiving release, so it's a holiday release. You know, around that time, you're starting to think of Christmas and whatnot. It, in a weird way, and and just stick with my chaotic brain, which you have all year. I appreciate it quite a bit, and my listeners, I appreciate it. Uh, it made me think of, baby, it's cold outside. And and the reason why it made me think of baby, it's cold outside is because, it's amazing how a song's lyrics can change depending on the context that either people are listening to 
or it's being presented as because somewhere out there in the film has a different connotation than the somewhere out there pop song. In the film, it's a brother and sister when they talk about the love that maybe they'll find and they'll bring them together because they're somewhere out there. In the pop song, it is played like a love song. And that's, uh, you know, context. Or am I, or am I being too too deep on this? No, I, mean, you, I, I haven't thought about it until now because I'm trying to unpack this. I don't think there's any change in the lyrics. No between the two it's mm-hmm. simply that you've got uh who did the duet with Linda Ronstadt you... uh I forgot offhand shoot let me, let me pull it up quick but um but yeah you're you're absolutely right it's a it's a platonic uh a, a familial kind of love like I want to get back to my family and we want to have you back and so we're kind of singing to the stars and I'm getting goosebumps now because I think it's a beautiful song but yeah, right. The the big radio smash hit that came out of this film is very much a a love song. But you know, I even though I'd never seen American Tale until today, mm-hmm. I knew that it was about a mouse trying to get back to his family. So mm-hmm. I'd never really thought of somewhere out there in a an overly romantic mm-hmm. context. Is, is James strange. James Ingram is James the... Ingram? Okay, but... Linda Ronstadt. And why I brought up Baby It's Cold Outside is I've heard three different versions uh, on my Spotify. I, I don't have a problem with the song because I understand context when it was made and uh, the culture of when this song takes place, mm-hmm. why the the female part is responding the way she is. If you kind of understand and watch enough 40s and 50s movies, you'll understand where that... The, while I'm not saying it doesn't still have kind of that underlying creepy vibe, you can kind of see why they look at it a little bit more innocently when it was being sung. But if yeah. you hear that song sung by the originals, if you hear it sung where a man is singing the female part and the female is singing the man part, even underlying subconsciously, that song has a completely different feel to it and meaning just by having the parts switched i don't and, know that i've heard the uh, no, a version like that there's uh i think CeeLo green did it i know lady gaga and uh for a live like a holiday performance one year uh joseph gordon levitt and lady gaga did it it's wow. on youtube there's a live performance but gaga sings the male parts and gordon levitt sings the female parts and just by switching those parts again in context song is is received completely differently and then i heard a new one this year it's not new but it's new to me and it's from postmodern jukebox to where it's only the female part singing and the male part is instead just played by a saxophone by a, by notes in the background and the, mm. the the song suddenly has another feeling altogether with it so again getting back to american tale somewhere out there the the way the song is portrayed beautifully in the film it's actually you could tell this is the centerpiece song for the musical you know i mean much like i and i love the whole musical i don't care what anybody says much like in um the greatest showman 
you know, this mm-hmm. is this is me is the tentpole song. That that's like the core song theme to the whole movie. Somewhere, oh yeah, out there, 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 there are notes uh, from somewhere out there all right. over James Horner's score. Yeah, it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. Yeah, and and it's about a, a mouse looking for his family. So it, somewhere out there, you know, if you watch enough musical, is probably going to be the big piece, and they do it justice here. I mean. The kids singing in a way that feels like kids are singing, but it's not in an annoying way, even though the voice cracks sometimes on purpose and, and it actually has an effect. It's actually a very beautiful moment in this in this film. And actually, that was my favorite number. My second favorite was actually The Tale on the Ship. Even though it was a dark song, it was about the, the, the cat, no cats in, in America. Yeah. I liked that song quite a bit too because of it, you you had the diversity of the different immigrants coming to America. We aren't just following the one Jewish Russian mouse family. We have an Italian and we have an Irish perspective as well on the boat. Yeah, I you know, I'll I'll stand up for I, I like those two songs a lot. I also really like Duo, the the Dom DeLuise oh, yeah. uh, Bible song. Mm-hmm. Um it, Dom DeLuise, as much of a goofy comic character as he was, I fell in love with that damn mm-hmm. cat. Uh, yep. Because when he says, when he's talking about his lineage, he says, I had uh, I had eight brothers, ten sisters, and three fathers. Yeah. <laughs> and they all like, died. He lost them all. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, well, well mom, mom certainly got around. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just, it, it was so endearing. And I like that you know, not all the cats are portrayed as, as villains because mm-hmm. for whatever kind of metaphor you want to come up with in this movie, it does help to humanize the bad guys to some mm-hmm. extent. So they're well, not completely one-dimensional. Well, yeah, I mean, having the cat as ridiculous as it is, and that meant that his size changed like Megatron in the original <laughs> cartoons. He's trying to portray a rat, but he's a cat. And you're like thinking logistic wise, unless he's a very small cat, although we are talking New York with very big rats, uh, <laughs> it, it's still a little bit of a stretch, but that at least gives his character more than just being a traitorous rat. He's actually a cat in disguise, which I liked that little gimmick. I liked the fact that, oh, he's an actual cat acting as a rat and the reason he was doing that was so he could get money from the mice rather than outright killing them he was posing as a rat to give protection to the mice and the reason he could give protection was because he actually owned the gangsters so he was basically just uh extorting them for money that's how they were doing the make how did i make this money because he had all those uh mice on the dock selling things to the immigrants as they were coming off the boat. Wow. And, I, that, I, I missed that whole, like <laughs> oh. that whole through line. Yeah. Because he, that, he sold five because he became 50 cents short, but with his wonderful cockroach right. accountant, uh, <laughs> I love the cockroach accountant. He was completely non like radioactive or something. He had, constantly had like electricity <laughs> surging through his body. He had electricity. Jamie Foxx, that Spider-Man movie. <laughs> yeah. He was like electro, but, I what the what I kind of got at least it was someone implied that he was extorting the money because of where they had him and them talking the money and he asked how much money do we make and the fact that we saw beforehand the different vendors snake oil salesmen whatever trying to sell an apple trying to sell whatever um 
a, a yeah. ticket to Chicago only used once. Right. Hey, it was only used once. <laughs> Here, just buy my apple before it's gone, you know. And then we see him counting his money. I think it's a little implied that he's extorting it. And then we get, uh, you know, uh, Madeline Kahn's uh, character later on mentioning on how you pay protection money for no protection, basically, <laughs> from yeah, the cats. I think... I think my problem with this movie that I need to watch again, obviously, is mm. I was so caught up in what the hell am I watching that I missed a lot of the dialogue that was sure. probably explaining what the hell I was watching. <laughs> and uh, you mentioned the character before. Uh, we should mention that there were the youngins, which, again, this is supposed to be for kids, but we have a rather interesting relationship immediately developed between our Tony to Pony and Bridget, who is who is looking for mice rights against the cats she's she's like this you know who instantly fall in love and they kiss at least three times i could already hear the little kids in the audience going (laughs) (laughs) and i'm just sitting here going they put that in this film really it really is like a down to the costumes it's almost like a jack and rose situation from the titanic it is uh which would you know was being developed like nine years later right pre-jack and rose maybe that's that was his inspiration (laughs) but we you mentioned uh tony uh to pony that is our link to batman mask of the phantasm actually uh pat music who does the voice voice for tony uh in not only this film but the uh, subsequent three sequels that came out, which was The Treasure of Manhattan Island and The Mystery of the Night Monster, which were in 98 and 99. Uh, Mystery <laughs> of the Night Monster? An American tale, Mystery of the Night Monster? Yes, really? Yes, really. Uh, <laughs> I'm not... I'm, I, I, Is Fievel now like a 25-year-old <laughs> ghostbuster or something? I, like, what's going on? <laughs> I don't know, but she is our link because she did do voices in Batman Mask of the Phantasm as well as the animated series. Um, and so she, here she did the Tony voice. So that's our our uh, 52 degree link to Batman Mask of the Phantasm. She just did additional voices, but she still did voices yeah. in the film. Yeah. She's credited, so I, I counted it. Trust me, uh, it was a long... <laughs> It was a long clicking back and forth trying to find links. Uh, but so Pat Music is our link. But yes, she the voice of Tony, who would go on to do the voice of that character throughout all four films, she's our link. So yeah, nice. that, that's our link. But yeah, you know, you're right. It's not, it's an interesting film, I think, quite a bit. I think it, it, it's worthy of a watch, especially if you're a Don Bluth fan. Um, it's interesting to see his early work and where he went later on with it. And it's also interesting to read how much he wasn't actually involved in subsequent sequels to his product uh, <laughs> as well, because he did Land Before Time. That's the only Land Before Time he was actually involved in either. Well, I mean, it's, you know, why do you need to be after that? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like... I, I, I'm not in Don Bluth's head, but I can imagine if you have an animated film that takes a long time to put together mm-hmm. and it becomes a smash hit, you can collect your money and use that to go and do other projects that you care about. He doesn't care about doing Land Before Time 25. No. But no. the studio who owns the property rights, perfectly fine coming up with another team of animators and script people somewhere to say, let's churn this thing out. And again, Don Bluth gets his checks yeah. <laughs> for creating the damn thing. Uh 
So I'm, I'm, a, I'm much more a fan of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of sequelizing everything to death with the original creator, just give them that money to go off and do, you know, okay. more magical original things. Yeah. And that's what he did because he also, you know, he, he not only worked on those, uh, kind of groundbreaking and interesting, uh, standups that made me waste money and quarters because of the laser disc loading, AKA Dragon's Lair. As good as it was, I could never play them because the blanking out screen for the chapter to load always would throw me the hell off. Uh, but he would go on later. If you watch this in Secret of Nim, you can see the seeds that he ended up later would develop into a, a little more mature film because then, right after American Tale, he did The Land Before Time. All Dogs Go to Heaven, Rockadoodle, Thumbelina, A Troll in Central Park, The Pebble and the Penguin, uh, but Anastasia. I love Anastasia. I have not seen that. Anastasia was great. I really enjoyed Anastasia. And then after Anastasia, he had Titan AE, which is oh, yeah. which is a wonderful film. And yes, uh, shameless plug, I did do a music video that got pulled by YouTube, but it is out there. Uh, if you ever want to watch it um, on the Facebook page. But, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he did Titan AE, which I actually love. I love Titan AE quite a bit. Um, and that's still his the artistic style. But again, you could see the elements in Titan AE. The seeds of that were in American Tale and Secret of Nim and, and all of his previous, you know, he grew and did something different, a little different with each one. They still kind of have that overall mixed bag of mature theme, immature theme, kind of roadmap tone, kind of all a little bit over the place, but at the same time, you know, dealing with more mature material for kids, which um, I'm not opposed to at all. In all honesty, I don't think kids should be talked down to because I think they'll surprise you on what they do understand. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, that's the thing is, uh, you know, you, you may have experienced this as, as you know, we're both, both parents, mm-hmm. but part of the problem of being a parent is you are so far removed from being a kid that you forget and you go into this protective kind of an instinct, but you're like, no, when, when we were, eight years old, we were watching stuff we shouldn't have. We understood way more than our parents thought we did. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just, you kind of forget it. It's probably some kind of a weird survival instinct at some point. Um, one thing I wanted to mention, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, great movies about fathers and sons. Mm-hmm. Did you see Onward from earlier yeah. this year? The yes. Star movie? Yes. That was one that I thought came out the exact wrong time. Like this is a Father's Day movie <laughs> and a half. It I mean, is. Yeah. Yeah, no, Onward surprised me in a good way. Although it's still Pixar's uh, We Hate Parents uh, theme. For as much as it hates parents, I think it was, this is the kind of the way that you do it right. Because, right, yeah, yeah, no, it's still, yeah. Because even though one of the parents is technically dead, he is in 98% of the movie. No, it is done right in this one versus some of their other films. It's 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 handled better in Onward quite a bit. And I, I yeah, I liked Onward. Uh I, I thought that was one of their better films in all honesty. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. you know, quite a bit. It it looks like they kinda may have stepped back and said, Well, what can we oh yeah, well let's do this. You know, it was original, it was different, 
had a lot of fun things in it, especially being a fantasy lover myself. I loved the, I always love amalgamation stuff, you know, where they combine two genres. I don't care what anyone says. People can shit on Sucker Punch all they want. We got steampunk Nazis. I will and I have. I know you have. (laughs) And that's fine. I, I totally get it. For me, I loved that film very much not so much for the story or whatever but i loved the worlds that they put these people in the fact you had a a world war ii fighter going against a dragon you had steampunk nazis you had huge samurai you know statues fighting the the amalgamation of genres i love that stuff when it's done you know, I think visually it's interesting. It throws your brain off a bit because you're always trained in a certain way for some things. And in a way, American Tales like that. It's an animated what? film with a cute main character, but it's not exactly for kids. <laughs> no, no, I don't think so. Uh, one last word on Sucker Punch. Go ahead. Uh, I hated that movie with a fiery, mm-hmm. fiery passion when I left the theater Whenever that came out, was it 10 years ago? I yeah, don't know, something about that at least, yeah. But I have heard defenses of it. I've heard that there's a really fascinating, I think it's a Zack Snyder commentary on the Blu-ray, which is why I own Sucker Punch on Blu-ray. I have not watched <laughs> it since I bought it, but one of these days I fully intend to go back and watch the what is it, the director's cut and mm-hmm. see if yeah. I feel differently about it or if I at least appreciate what Snyder was going for more than I did watching that theatrical version, which I think was just kind of a mess. It was a mess. The director's cut puts a little bit more in perspective, especially the last way the film ends Mm -hmm. is, is handled differently with the director's cut. And there's an additional musical scene uh, in the director's cut that was not in the uh, theatrical cut for sucker punch. And I actually, I, I enjoyed that one quite a bit the director's cut um but i enjoy both films but again those aren't that that's a film that i don't i didn't in it wasn't so much the story itself it was the the sequences the three main action sequences in it that pulled me in so in between i got what they were going for and i got the seriousness and the disturbedness of what it actually all was you know, what the metaphor was, what is actually going on. I got that. But for me, I enjoyed it for the visual stuff because it was them taking a chance with some visual stuff that you hadn't really seen people try to do. (laughs) You know, you play with genres like that. Um, Yeah. You know, and I think if it was in a different film, I think more people would probably enjoy it more than being in that film for what they did. But for me... It doesn't bother me. I, I I enjoy it for what it is. I recognize people hate it, and by you know, the was it the Legends of Gaul? Not to make this a Zack Snyder thing, but the animated film he did, uh, uh, just I think before or after Sucker Punch. That's visually stunning too. The animation in that one is is crazy. Uh, and you know that was one that I haven't seen, but and I know it did terribly at the box office. But I know a lot of people who really dig that movie, you know, even from a so-called critical standpoint. So, um, yeah, I need to catch up with that and and Sucker <laughs> but, Punch. But that was another. That's another film that is that is uh, was just before Sucker Punch. But it was 
a darker animated film. It was very Don Bluth-esque in the way it approached the material and, and the way it was handled. You know, it reminded me a lot of that, like a Secret of Nim type stuff. Uh, almost as if if you take the old scary frickin' as hell owl out of Secret of Nim and you did a whole story on him, that's what Legends of Gogol was kind of like in many ways. Um, you know, I'm sold. I'm sold. <laughs> if anything, for the visuals. Sure. You know, the animation in, in Legends of Gogol really, really caught me, you know. Um, and in here... It took seeing the animation in this one really took me back to my childhood of the '80s animation 2D stuff. You know, we don't realize just how much CG animation films we get now because the 2D, even even the Disney 2D stuff, it's all cleaned up and digitally enhanced or whatnot or whatnot. You know, here you see stroke marks, you see you get the the setting of the location, which is basically the matte painting, <laughs> you, you know. I love that there's the matte painting. And then in the case of, there's one scene where there's just a pile of junk. There's a lot of scenes of piles of junk and there's a shoe and the tongue of the shoe, like the shoe is beautifully painted and rendered, but then there's the tongue, which is a flat kind of piece of artwork because someone's going to pop out of there or something. I, I love looking for that. I also like, you know, you can tell it's all cell animation mm -hmm. when they do the close-ups of the characters. You can see the little shadow mm -hmm. uh, of the cell against the against the backdrop, and that's always fun to kind of look at. The, I like the messiness of it today. You're right; today's stuff is too clean. Mm -hmm. And even when they try and do something that's a retro look, you're like, "Oh, that's a retro filter or technique they put onto something to make it look as if it was, you know, down and right. dirty." And, and don't get me wrong; I still like today, but it was just kind of fun to watch it here to where the credit sequence is something you're used to seeing on a made for TV animated film. But this was a live action film where you get credits against a matte painting or a series of matte painting backdrops, uh, you know, and they're, they're not necessarily paintings that have depth to them. They're kind of abstract to where you can tell, okay, that's a cityscape, but not every building has been drawn out. It's kind of smeared watercolor type angle and well that uh, the closing credits uh scene or when when they're they're on the bird flying mm -hmm. away off in the sunset and you can see looking down the landscape beyond the statue of liberty mm -hmm. the, i don't know how big that damn thing was because they're doing a straight up flyover i mean it looked like it was about as big as it would actually be if you're flying over that in, a, in an airplane i'm looking for those details you know, you're right. Not every building is rendered, but as you go off into the countryside, like over on the right hand side of the frame, you got hills and stuff, but you can see little buildings dotting the landscape going off on the horizon. I'm like, that is, that's crazy. It's just insane. Especially because they had to do that by hand back then. They didn't, it wasn't digitally created and it was only for a few seconds shot. It's not, you know, some of those scenes yeah, I guess, too. Yeah. Some, I could see someone spending a month doing a painting that you're going to see that that half the audience, half the target audience, because at that point, the kids are either falling asleep or they're getting ready to they're putting their coats on. The parents are like, let's just get the hell out of here. I can hear the end credit music coming up. But it's for the the handful of animation nerds who are going to watch there and just be like swept up by this <laughs> this incredible detail. You've got a month to a 15 second <laughs> ratio <laughs> well and they he does a cute thing too here with it being a family film uh, being at the end 
He has the two mice. He has Fievel and his sister look back at the very end while they're on the back of the bird. And they look back directly at the screen and say goodbye. And they cut away to it being they're saying goodbye to the Statue of Liberty. But it it pauses enough to where you're like, oh, he's also having the characters say goodbye to the kids in the audience. And I love that. I I felt like I was eight years old I did watching too. <laughs> I did too. I almost I almost reflexively like waved at my laptop. <laughs> I did too because I'm watching it and all of a sudden, you know, they're doing the big swell and they're they're flying off of the sun. And all of a sudden they both look back and they go, Goodbye. And I'm like, he could have ended the credits right there. And I was just like, Goodbye. <laughs> you know, but then you realize they're saying goodbye to the Statue of Liberty, in which case then you're a little disappointed as an adult because you're like, oh, they they weren't talking to me. They were talking to the Statue of Liberty. Unless, because that's the point of view, that's a deliberate decision, are we the Statue of Liberty? Are we meant to be the symbol that's carrying on the love and the hope and the acceptance? We very well probably are, knowing Don Bluth. I wouldn't put it past that that was the implied. Yeah, it's... I think we get, and I I fully expected coming out of this being old cynical man going, this is just crap and saccharine or whatnot, but there's more to it than that. And it makes you realize how animated films have changed over the years, you know, and just films in general, but especially animated films to where you can have happy like complete happy endings to it. I mean, let's look at it. None of the cats actually died. Right. Okay? None of the, at least on screen, none of the mice in his family died. Most of the mice that were in the group that built the A-team monster, they all lived as far as we're aware. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, the bad guys, yeah, they were meant to be scary, but the Cossack cats were made to be far more scary then the gangster cats, even when the gangster cats went on a rampage, they weren't nearly as scary as the um, the Cossack cats because they were drawn completely black with the glowing eyes and the, <laughs> the teeth. You, you know, but it, it's, I think we're used to getting a little bit darker and maybe a little more cynical kid movies that when you watch something like this, you're taken aback because you're just like, oh. You're not trying to be ironic in this. You're actually, you know, <laughs> I mean, now watching it, they're, you know, where they're talking about America is great. No, we're going to run into all these things. My head's going through the history going, yeah, the famine, the plague, you guys are going to get rejected. You're going to be in the slums. Yup, yup, yup. This is a joke, tongue in cheek. Ha ha. Yeah, America's big. But then I was realizing, oh, no, he's being genuine in his message towards trying to paint America, at least at the time of being a place of opportunity and how we should really go back to that, you know? Uh, but it took me a little while cause I thought it was like an in joke, but then I'm like, no, wait, this is made in 86, not in today where today that there'd be that irony. Right. Because, and it would have to be ironic because, you know, patriotism, especially in the arts is dead. Um, <laughs> and you know, and that's sometimes I'm like, yeah, I get it. But another times when I'm looking at this kind of classic, yes, it's a piece of propaganda, but I'm like, yeah, there's nothing necessarily wrong with loving your country or, <laughs> or stopping to think about, you know, as many problems as it has. And as, as dark a history we we've had, uh, there are some good things too. Um, yeah. even as, as you say, I think, uh, aptly, 
is the opportunity, the opportunity to come here and struggle and be rejected and, you know, possibly be on the verge of starvation, but to also perhaps set up a business or at least mm -hmm. a family legacy that a century later, you know, your mm -hmm. descendants might be able to make something, you know, better than you had coming from a place where you're people are being tortured and and killed and their houses set on fire. Well, granted, this was before World War One too. So you got all of that history creeping in as you've got all these people looking to America to be hopeful. But I think it's also mm -hmm. trying to give you that window of how people saw America at the time. And in 86, people may not have seen America at at the time like that coming, you know, from Europe and that. So I think it was just trying to say, hey, one time, it was the place that people wanted to go to, you know, um, and I, I'm I'm not getting political at all. I'm just saying that the propaganda in this film too. If people have problem with propaganda, then you haven't been paying attention to film over the last hundred years because ever since there's been moving pictures, they've been used one way or the other, or not all of them, but there have been propaganda films throughout, whether or not it's subtle or not so subtle. Well, and, and honestly, it's it's all propaganda. I mean, when I was talking about the, you know, today you can't make a patriotic movie unless it's in an ironic context. The denigration of patriotism is, in a sense, now I'm not saying I'm not getting conspiracy minded and saying it's an organized thing by somebody, but that is if you look at things culturally and the cumulative effect over the last couple of decades since this movie was made, that is an attitude that is being promoted in the culture, mm -hmm. much like the rah, rah, go America attitude is being promoted in the culture in 1986. Well, I, and, but I'll also spin it from the other side of the perspective. We've also had pretty much since the, actually, especially since the eighties, but even before then, Anti-intellectualism in films is very prevalent because the nerd is usually the comical joke. Even today, you're, you still have the nerd who's the gimmick. The guy who knows all can't just be someone who is smart. They have to have a quirk. They have to have the glasses. They have to have the pocket protector. They have to be nerd-like. They have to be geek-like. They have to be either into comics or into movies heavily, or they have to reference them. They can't just be intelligent people for most of the films. It's or, they, still... or they have to be a superhero. Or they got to be, right. Because I'm thinking, or like, James Bond, Professor mm -hmm. X, you know, there's, there's no, like, middle ground. Okay, <laughs> They're yeah. either superheroes. Human or subhuman. <laughs> right. They're they're superheroes. If they're super smart, like Iron Man and that, they're into science, well, that's great. But he's also suave, good looking, and he's got a shit ton of money. You know, Professor X, he's smart. If you go by uh, you know, first class, he's smart, he's rather suave, he's good looking, but he's got lots of money and he's also intelligent. Or, common denominator here. <laughs> yeah. But the only but, thing a nerd from being suave is a shit ton of money. Right. So, I mean, whereas, you, you know, you have the argument that patriotism today is look at cynical. It's even farther back that people who are smart, while they may end up coming up with the answer, the way they're portrayed 90% of the time is cynical. It is, it is the gimmick. It is the joke that that person is 
you know, now granted, when it comes to brass tacks, the very annoying an answer, usually the smart guy is where they turn to. But the lead up to that, how that person's portrayed is a trope that is carried over for decades, even more so than cynical patriotism of today. We've had that even longer to where it's a joke to be into something, into whatever, just to be, you can't be a normal person. And be either a patri- you know, a, a patriotic or or smart. Without in, in the films, without having some gimmick or joke to it, ninety percent of the time. Right, and, and I think um, you know, you talk about the image of the patriot, um, and this goes back even to something like Tremors. Mm-hmm. We look at Michael Gross's character, who's you know, rah rah mm-hmm. American. He's also a survivalist. You know, you, you can't either if you're a patriot, you have to be a racist or you have to be like in love with guns or a prepper. You know, you can't just be someone who's like, I'm really glad that I live in this country and I have these opportunities. You know, I, I'm just going to go mow my lawn or go to the mall. <laughs> you know, it's like if, if that is at all a part of your personality and you are a character in a film, you are going to the mall to buy bullets <laughs> for your bunker. <laughs> what what I think that is though is um I'll argue that it's that's not necessarily that it that it goes along the same way of the caricature because they don't want to spend too much time developing the person. It it's the same way of having ye old white guy try to write an African American female dialogue or a, a character or you know, they those writers tend to not take seem to take a lot of time in writing it in a way that'll make them normal. They go for the trope so you can identify that person immediately. So you don't necessarily have to think about who the person is. So dialogue like patriotism is handled in such a cliche way that it ends up being off putting because of the way they write it. And I yeah, haven't I mean, seen it handled many ways, just like intellectualism, just like even uh, racial cultural phrases or dialogue, unless it's really being written by the person from that culture. It's not usually not always, but not usually handled right because <laughs> it's, it's the way they think. The people yeah, I mean, talk, yeah, you know, I, it's a shorthand for sure. Uh, but one of the traps I think some people fall into from a creative perspective is assuming that you need to write dialogue a certain way to represent people from a, of a culture that's not your own. Um, like when I, when I was working, (laughs) I would go to the office and I would, you know, interact with people from all sorts of different, Mm -hmm. you know, races and backgrounds and stuff. But when I would say, talk to someone who was, you know, black, it was not like, yo man, what's up? It's just like, you know, hey, how you doing, Mark? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like it's almost you, you write yourself into this offensive box like, oh, I got to have a diverse character. I wonder what they sound like. Well, they sound like, you know, you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, possibly. I mean, you know, if yeah. you or there might be people who talk in a more um, I, I don't know. uh I was going to say regional dialect. That sounds terrible. I don't even know. But, you know, something mm-hmm. like a more more of a nuanced kind of way of speaking uh like you know you got your rednecks and you got you know mm-hmm. <laughs> germans or whatever but uh chances are if you're just writing a scene 
of, you know, someone walking down the street in a city and meeting someone who's of a different, you know, race, you don't necessarily have to like get inside their head. And what would, what would a person like this say or sound like, you know, they're just ordering coffee. What's the big deal. And to bring it back all the way back around to American tale, we have the scene of the immigrants on the boat and there you are using, using cultural phrases in that. But at the same time, these are immigrants coming from their land. It's not like we have someone who was, you know, this is going to sound weird, but you don't have someone, like you said, who's born in this country, who happens to be of a different ethnic race than white. They don't, they, they talk different in this because they're, that's the country they're from. That's how they actually do talk versus someone who you get a character who was born in this century in the U.S., <laughs> They aren't good. You're going to, I know many people who have Irish backgrounds who don't speak with an Irish accent, you know, right. but yet in film, if the person is an O'Malley, they're <laughs> going to have even a hint of an Irish accent, or it's going to come up at some point of why they speak differently. Well, and that's, you know, that's something that, you know, we may have talked about this in the myriad movies we've covered this year, but I know I've talked about it on, on my show uh whenever you have a character who's from boston or chicago it's not just like oh yeah he he transferred you know to the chicago bureau from boston it's like uh yeah fucking southie you know uh, it's, uh yo duncan's uh, gotta go do the thing you know it's or where you have an english actor like benedict cumberbatch has to adopt some kind of a ridiculous accent i'm like you know what english people live in west virginia it's okay <laughs> Hey, I get that in the Northland here, you know, there, eh? Well, we, we're we from the North. We're from there, the Wisconsin, yeah. You know, with the cheese and the beer. Oh, yeah, and the bears, you know. That's the thing. It's like, I think people are so aware of multiculturalism, uh, multi, uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's the only word I can think of. But the idea of people in America like moving around and living in different places in different times, that you could have someone with a thick Wisconsin accent as a character living in Boston, and it doesn't have to be a whole thing. Right. You know, it's, why do you sound like that? Because, you know, I'm, I'm from a different place. Like, move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you cross over into Boston, you don't automatically start using the, the term Southie. Uh, hey, and... Uh, for me, I will always remember, and boy, if we drifted off tangent, but I, I remember uh, a, a girl I met, we were driving down to Florida, my mom, my best friend and I, and we stayed at a hotel overnight, and while we're at the swimming pool, we met a couple of, of ladies uh, from, well, we were all at the same age, like 16. Anyway, they're from uh, uh, Massachusetts. It took me a long time to get used to being called Mock <laughs> instead of Mark. Uh, it took me aback at first, but I was just like, oh, okay. But, you know, you know, if it was a film, it would be played as a joke rather than it would be pointed out. It would be focused on, you know, uh, and you don't have that here actually bringing it again. In American <laughs> Tale, you have... A, a melting pot of different ethnicities in this film, but at the same time, they're not too played up. Like the, the Tony guy, who's definitely from New York, but his accent for New York isn't so thick that you're like, oh, he's from New York, because he talks like that, you know? 
or the Irish guy singing, the guy from Ireland, he's got an Irish accent, but it's not so leprechaun-y, you know, it's, <laughs> in fact, it'd be a little hard to tell he was Irish until he starts talking Gaelic at the end of his song, his verse, you know, um, it even our Moskowitz, they aren't exactly speaking with heavy Russian Jewish cool. accents. Right. But they give you enough to make you realize they are from there, but at the same time, it's not done as the gimmick. Yeah, it comes across in the characterization and not necessarily mm-hmm. the voice. They're not being called upon as voice actors to say, can right. you just, you know, <laughs> we're not getting what ethnicity you are. You got to sell it. You got to no. sell it. You got to throw more. Uh, can you roll your R's more? Can you, can you give us more lucky charms? Come on. <laughs> you know, um, you're not getting that. And so that's what I liked in American Tale as well is how they handled the melting pot and the ethnicities in this film was actually handled very, very well to where yeah. they wanted to portray that these folks definitely are from a different country coming to America. These aren't American characters but at the same time they didn't play them overly tropish i think to where they were the joke it was just that's where their character was from you know um and i like that and we don't get that in a lot of films even today we still don't get that in a lot of films um you know yeah it's it's sad that you they feel that people and again it's it's what it is. It's just I think is is a a lazy or just an easy out to. This is that character. We write it like this. They'll know who it is right away, and we can just move on. You know, you know the the, and it's. I wish they wouldn't do that all the time, but they do that more often than not, even in today's movies. So, yeah, because a lot of stuff now is is product it's mcdonald's french fries you know <laughs> you know you can go to any number of restaurants and get better made french fries uh that have nuance to the flavor and and all that stuff but you you go there because you know exactly what you're going to get there's no surprises you have to worry about like oh this is i want to i want this to taste like the fries i've had for the last 25 years i don't want you know different spices on them <laughs> so so there you go folks we've just we've just painted a broad spectrum of all kinds of subjects with this simple animated film american tale which is actually not that simple uh because again it's bluth bluth does this with his films you know? we have almost matched the running time of this movie with this we, have. <laughs> we have and i apologize for going so late but i i didn't oh. expect but uh it's one of those where it's this isn't like Norm of the North, okay? This this actually has some nuance and stuff to it. I've um, seen Norm of the North. I don't get that. Don't know. But um, or like you know, you, you saw it in Titan A. You've seen it in his other works uh, that he makes like this. It's they're definitely Don Bluth films. And to wrap it up, I will say this is you look at this and you go, "Yup, that's Don Bluth," and you can see. All of his other films afterwards, you can see elements of those in this film and how he approaches animated material. It's a very unique way, whether you like it or not, if it's too mature or not, whether or not it makes sense or not. You you know it's a Bluth film, though. I mean, he definitely has his own style, just like you know a Disney film is a Disney film. And it's great that we have alternatives to the House of Mouse <laughs> ironically <laughs> ironically 
you know, that are do that have done films like this, we we have alternatives to just Disney, and they are out there, and not just the generic direct-to-video, really crappy animated films. There are films out there that are good for the whole family that don't have Disney's name in the title. Yeah. So uh, I think that's what we'll wrap it up here for the night. And again, didn't expect this, but uh, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Food for thought for everybody out there. Uh, thank you, Ian, as always. And now this is always where you get the license to shill, sir. So please shill away. Well, thank you. Um, I'm Ian Simmons. I run Kicking the Seat, which you can find at kickseat.com. Uh, I do a podcast there between two and three times a week. Um, been focusing a lot on YouTube, so you can go to... You're on YouTube uh, right, right now, now, so you can hop on over to... After this is over, of course, uh, hop on over to the Kicking the Seat YouTube channel and check out uh, some of the stuff there. So, love to have you. There you go, folks. We have two more films, and what two films will be on the docket to close out our 52? Yes, we will hit 52 movies. By God, I did it. Um, and those will be coming next week to round out the year. So look for those. Uh, yeah, uh, there's uh, some fun things on deck. I'm doing the vinyl countdown, as I call it, where we're doing uh, vinyl. It's Vinyly Mine episodes, uh, one each day at least is being released to kick out 2020 to celebrate the end of 2020. So, yes, I'm doing 12 vinyl album reviews in 12 days uh because you know i hate myself in <laughs> in making my hobby so much work but i have so much fun doing them um so look for those and cannon fodder is coming folks i've already got an interview lined up for january for cannon fodder for our first cannon father episode which will be the apple you can deduce who i'm going to interview uh, and we even got an opening for the film, uh, for the episodes, which you won't hear yet, but uh, some of my uh, crew have heard, and I've been told it's a good thing. So lots of great... Very, very good thing. You did. You, you knocked that out of the park. <laughs> Thank you. So a lot of good things coming up, folks. Thank you so much for listening to us ramble, and now we'll just say a good night, everyone. Good night. Hey, all my friends out there looking for more Spoiler Room goodness? Then why don't you check out our brand new Patreon page, patreon.com slash specialmarkproductions, where you can get access to exclusive Spoiler Room episodes and a whole lot more. You can also find us on Facebook groups at SMPRD and on to Twitter at SpecialMarkPro. Let your voice be heard and let us know what you would like to see in the Spoiler Room, as well as just how we're doing in general. We appreciate your support, and remember in the Spoiler Room, the conversation is fresh, but we do spoil the movies.